Hello and welcome to Food Systems, a podcast from the Forum for the Future of Agriculture, where we discuss ideas that can shape a sustainable food system, from farm to fork, from policy to consumers, and everything in between. I'm your host, Robert Graff, and you can find us on Twitter at Forum for Ag. These episodes will be available every other week on all major podcast platforms. Before we get started, we would like to say a quick thank you to the Forum Founding Partners, the European Landowners Organization and Syngenta, as well as the Forum Strategic Partners, Cargill, the International Union for Conservation of Nature, the Nature Conservancy, Thought for Food and the World Wildlife Fund. Please enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Food Systems. I'm joined today by Melissa Ho. She is the Senior Vice President for Freshwater and Food at World Wildlife Fund uh, United States. Melissa, thank you so much for joining Food Systems today. Thanks so much for having me, Robert. Of course, WWF Europe is one of the strategic partners of the forum. But before I wanted to get into our main issue, water and agriculture. I wanted to begin with the UN Food Systems Summit, uh, which took place in September, and you were there. And I just wanted to get what your experience of the summit was and whether or not you think it's created the catalyst for really an improvement in the sustainability of the food system. Thanks for that question. Uh, and let me clarify, I, I wasn't there personally. Uh, WWF was there in full force led by our food practice leader, Joao Campari, who was also the action track for leader for nature positive production. But the WWF US food team really worked hard to support that agenda behind the scenes. Um, so I, just, just to clarify, uh, that summit, I think the first ever food system summit at a global level was a really important moment. Uh, it was two years in the making it was hundreds of consultations and thousands of participants and stakeholders across the country, uh, all coming together to really elevate the need for concrete ambition and actions related to food systems. And I think from WWF's perspective, especially WWF US, uh, we really are using that summit and that moment and the readout and takeaways from it to drive ambition in other platforms too, like the Convention on Biological Diversity, where commitments will be made by governments on nature and biodiversity, as well as this coming week going into COP26 in Glasgow, and obviously country commitments on climate. So really elevating the importance of food systems in, in, a, in this other broader global agenda on climate and nature for us is really what the momentum was about. And then in addition to the commitments at you know, the government and national level, I think the momentum and the collaboration, the collegiality, all of these coalitions that have been formed from the from the summit itself uh, is really driving action on the ground from the grassroots bottom up. So there's both this top down set of priorities that's been identified now for food systems, as well as lots of stakeholders and actors, including producer groups uh, around the world in specific regions that are mobilizing key actions on, on food systems transformation. Are there any specific outcomes that you saw uh, come out? You thought, oh, I'm very glad that that was tackled or that that got, finally got its serious moment in the sun. Yeah, I think, um, and, and this is along the lines of WWF's priorities, I think there's a real elevation on policy and uh, national government's roles in 
uh, how they do or don't support food systems transformation towards a healthy climate, healthy people, uh, what food systems deliver for nutrition, uh, what their impacts are on climate, uh, as well as, you know, the climate impacts on agriculture and the need for resilience and financing around that. Um, I, I think there's a real uh, elevation in understanding the role of land use change. There um, is now much more than ever an understanding of deforestation, conversion, uh, implications of expansion of agriculture. And we also are seeing that going into COP uh, because the implications on, on climate change are also huge as well as on biodiversity loss. So, and, and then the other one I will also mention in the US team had such a role to play is also on um, the addressing uh, food waste and loss, which is just you know a no brainer that all of the energy the resources that go into producing food, you know, if 40% or more is being lost, uh, what a waste, right? What a waste for nutrition and, and outcomes for human, uh, human needs and use when we have so many people starving and needing the food. And then what a waste on the resource use uh, as well. Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to turn now to sort of to our main topic, which is talk about water and agriculture. I wanted to start in the United States. Um, in the last couple of years, certainly the Western United States uh, has experienced some really severe droughts uh, that have had enormous impacts on, on farmers in terms of what they can produce, but also in terms of larger landscapes and biodiversity. I wonder if you could talk us through a little bit, certainly for a European audience, what some of the causes and effects of these droughts have been. Yeah, I, um, I, I think the first thing to know is that Western water and infrastructure and water management development in the West of the US has a very storied history. I really recommend a book by Wallace Stegner, who's a story, you know, a classic American writer uh, called The Hundredth Meridian that really talks about uh, the opening up of the West and, and largely through uh, Western water management and, and John Wesley Powell, especially. So there's two major reservoirs that we're tracking and that you can just see their status to understand the state of all of Western water, Lake Mead, as well as Lake Powell, um, named after John Wesley Powell. And, and these two huge reservoirs, uh, for instance, Lake Mead is uh, the result of a massive human engineering feat, Hoover Dam, uh, which has dammed the Colorado River in the southwest U.S., um, these reservoirs provide water resources for over 25 million people in Arizona, California, Nevada, and even down parts in Mexico. And if you look at the history and the status currently of these reservoirs, uh, they're at around 35% of their holding capacity right now, which is the lowest they have ever been since their uh, inception. And that is very much the result of not just a drought, but really what experts are calling a mega drought. Um, and so there's so much at stake for people's, uh, you know, not just livelihoods in terms of agriculture, there's a huge dependency uh, for these reservoirs to deliver irrigation water. 80-90% um, of the use of water, consumptive use in the West is actually going to agriculture, but also to the cities, to the people for daily, you know, daily consumption of water by household. Um, so it's a big, big problem. And I think, um, again, it's not, it's, it's been two decades now. I think since 2000, we've seen chronic severe drought scenarios that it's not just, it's not just what we would have called previously episodic drought. And part of the response to these droughts in, in the West um, has been now to create uh, more marketization and more commodification of, of water. Uh, last year, we saw the launch of the first ever water future market, specifically based around these Western water supplies. 
Do you think water pricing is a strategy for the future or are we commodifying assets that really should be held for everybody and not just for those who can afford it? Yeah, so I, I think, um, you know, water markets is very controversial. It's very um, nascent uh, and emerging in terms of a mechanism to help manage uh, water through a market-based system. I, I think I want to back up just a second, though, and take it in a little bit of context, right? Um, so I think I, I was mentioning that this drought scenarios are becoming uh, more chronic and massive. And, and I, if I hadn't, I would be remiss in saying it's you know, largely driven by climate change um, and, and shifting lots of things happening in the, in the hydrologic cycle. Um, I think the other dynamic to mention is groundwater uh, resources and the importance of groundwater, especially in California, where these water markets are taking off, but not only in California. Um, and understanding, you know, that dynamic is also really important. So in California, groundwater accounts for more than a third of all the water used uh, and in dry and even more in dry years. And then until recently, groundwater was not highly regulated. And so when basins were experiencing this drought, there's been chronic overdraft of uh, groundwater resources. Um, and so it's led to a lot of degradation and lots of saltwater intrusion, land subsidence, you know, lots of things that you see uh, when you when you over allocate, in addition to just there's water shortages, too. And so in 2014, California enacted through many years of dialogue, the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act, which actually mandates that local groundwater users bring their basins back into um, balance by 20 in, by the 2040s. And so there's a lot that has to go into this process uh, of helping individual users of that withdraw the water, including ag irrigation districts, but also the communities build resilience, seeing the future uh, scenarios of, of climate change. We're not getting this water back, right? And we just talked about how this is, this is the new future in terms of these droughts. Uh, and so water markets are just one piece of a mechanism to help manage this groundwater. There's a lot of other mechanisms too. And I'm happy to go into it I, I, if you want to jump in. Sorry. When you said that the, the New Water Act requires the, the groundwaters to be back in balance by 2040, I thought that seems quite late in the cycle, given the sort of terminal warnings we have regarding the climate and, and the 1.5 degrees warning. And the, there seems to be a sort of time disparity there. It doesn't mean they're doing nothing in the meantime. So there will be, you know, progress that they need to make you know, over the next 20 years for sure. So it's not that there is no action and then all of a sudden you get into balance in 2040. And that's where water markets are one mechanism, right? In addition to um, land management changes uh, as well as infrastructure improvements and things like that that are also being looked at. So water trading in California isn't new. Um, and I think the idea that these water markets, especially around groundwater um, are, are springing up and that I think the big, um, attention seeking, you know, the attention getting things in the news is that real uh, corporates and, and investors are coming in to to have um, a, a piece of the puzzle and in, in, in how they're inv investing and in, in affecting the spot markets around water. Um, so, you know, CME Group, for instance, put out contracts linked to over a billion dollars in the California water markets. There's farmers groups, there's hedge funds, uh, and even municipalities are are placing bets on, you know, water scarcity and, and sort of the water scenarios. I think the thing I want to mention, um, whether it's right or wrong, I think it's the future and it's happening. It's not the future. It's happening now. 
Um, and I think, again, there is some need to have pricing and um, the true cost of water be evaluated. And, and, and for many, the markets is a way to bear that out. But the other piece of the puzzle is around governance and the equity and inclusion, your point around commodification of water. It's really important to understand the impacts and the design of these systems to ensure uh, that basic human right of having access to water and households and livelihoods is also maintained. And so I think there's a real, um, a lot of thoughtfulness needed. And I know folks are on the ground thinking about this in terms of access, social justice, and looking at the vulnerable communities um, who, who are undoubtedly going to be affected uh, from a market approach. Um, because if, if you, if, the, if, if water goes to the highest bidder, then there's then, you know, more uh, of a divide with the haves and have nots even now over water. From what I understood is that California as well, specifically California, but also the other Western states, there's not just a problem of climate. There's been an immense backlog of repair or lack of upgrading of the infrastructure. Is it, would it maybe not be an idea to say, well, let's fix that first and then we consider about, then we talk about pricing? I mean, I don't know your point that, you know, 2040 seems so far away. I, I, I think on the other hand, a lot of change and um, in, in the different things that need to be done all need to be done in parallel. We can't be doing, uh, you know, uh, solutions uh, in, in, in sequence. And so I, you know, I don't I don't know that we should be waiting for one in order to do the other. But absolutely, you're highlighting a very important um area too around infrastructure. And I think, you know, the WWF perspective, um, you know, we're not directly engaged in the water discussions in California, but in general, in addition to hard infrastructure, um, we very much also see uh, green infrastructure and nature-based solutions as a key part of how to bank water into soil, how to have uh, a lot of better management practices and changing, um, you know, farm systems, but also our land management systems uh, that go along with upgrades and um, and and you know uh, restoration of of hard infrastructure. When you're talking about green infrastructure, you're really talking about land management. Are there specific things that you would say? Well, these are things that that farmers in the Western U.S. or in Europe should be doing more than they currently are to help conserve water use and conserve water in a sensible manner. Yeah, I mean, I think wetlands restoration is a key one uh, for landscape management. And then definitely on farm, uh, there's lots of things to be done to improve uh, ag practices for, for water management. And so we think of regenerative ag, which is a buzzword these days uh, in farming in the U.S. and, 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 and even globally, uh, as important for climate impacts and carbon sequestration. But we really view it even much more so for water management and soil health, uh, soil infrastructure, um, soil and nutrient management. Uh, we need to be thinking, obviously, about water quantity and management in terms of the physical volume of water. Uh, but there's also water quality and understanding, you know, all of the runoff, all of the uh, issues around degradation of water systems from ag and, and that as well. So um, absolutely. Um, you know, wetlands uh, around the world have been converted, uh, Europe, the U.S., uh, everywhere, Asia. Uh, and so that one, it, it's a not one of these examples of nature-based infrastructures. And, and people, it's, it's been amazing to me to think um, how wineries and, and ag systems are, are building riparian systems. Some of them are managed, constructed wetlands, as well as there are opportunities to re-put um, uh, land back into natural systems as well. 
In, in a sort of more global context, since we're talking about land management, uh, one of the greater pressures, certainly in the developing world, um, is desertification. Uh, it's an issue, it's hugely pressing in China, as well as in increasingly in Central Asia. Uh, according to the UN, up to 3.2 billion people are now under pressure from desertification. How do you think not just farming, but also organizations like the WWF can play a more positive role in halting those changes in very sort of subsistence level farming. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, I think this really is highlighting again, both the land use change issue as well as the water management issue. Uh, desertification, as you said, you know, over 3 billion people, a third, you know, up to a half in some regions um, are facing this threat. And I think it's a um, an under appreciated and a topic not always elevated. And it really is the convergence, um, as I mentioned, of land use change, water, but, but also now climate as a huge driver of desertification as well. And humans have a real role to play. So I think WWF's take on this is that, uh, especially related to food systems, but not only, where human impact is driving uh, land use change and over allocation of water, um, and especially in areas where we know climate change is having severe negative impacts, we need to manage even more urgently uh, so we can avoid desertification and, and keep natural systems in play. And, and all the more reason, as I mentioned before, to really elevate, highlight, and uh, exploit nature-based solutions. So is, is, is the biggest object in making these changes now is it practical is it funding are there things that the european union or the united states should be doing is it simply a money matter of money or what is it that we should tackle first yeah it's all of the above right i think um there are practical solutions on the ground um you may or may not know that the uh, un ccd the convention on combating desertification which is really uh, the only global framework, uh, at least to my knowledge, uh, that is really calling on country governments to make commitments around uh, land use management change related to the desertification issue. Um, it just met last week uh, and its experts were really addressing regional strategies. Uh, the, the summer and the impending dust storms in Central Asia was a key focus of their uh, deliberations last week. And then this is leading up to the UNCCD uh, COP15 conference in May of next year. Um, and so again, it doesn't get as much attention as the climate COP, but it is at that same elevated level, just like the Convention on Biological Diversity and the Nature COP um, is, a, is another place where you start at national level commitments towards a global set of goals. Um, that's very high level. And then obviously there are regional things, right? Europe, you have the Mediterranean um, uh, area and I think around the Black Sea where desertification is, is, um, is, is playing out and, and there's lots of, I think, EU uh, agendas around that. Um, and then definitely, you know, West Africa is another one I think of where there's very clear initiatives of uh, land management, tree planting, you know, irrigation and ag strategies, things that are happening on the ground in the Sahel, uh, and again, often uh, convened by the UN, but then really executed at the regional and local level um, that are looking at these issues on the ground. Um, so I do think we need more resources, uh, but then it's not just more money, it's a, it's a more integrated approach. As I mentioned, this is a convergence of issues and there's commitments being made in these other platforms, 
and there's overlapping of ministries and stakeholders. So we also just need to be taking a, a more systems-based approach when we think of what are the solutions needed on the ground. Um, so yes, more resources, but also smarter implementation of those resources as well. One of the, the sort of resources that's being talked about a lot at the moment and that's being held up as a real promise are uh, new strains and new crops specifically bred to be drought resistant. Um, wheat, maize, some of the real staple crops, that could have a real impact in not just combating desertification, but producing more and better food. In your view, do you think we will are likely to see these apply technologies really on farm fields in the coming decade or is this something that is still too far away so um we're seeing the um we're harvesting the fruits of science and technology and research and agriculture now um i think it is an arms race in terms of the investments we are making and that we are that are needed uh to keep up with a changing set of challenges that farmers are having and producing and keeping our yields high to feed the world. Um, so absolutely, uh, that's uh, another area when I used to work in the US government, um, really having the long term vision of why ag investment and in research and development is so needed for climate change for, you know, uh, biotic and abiotic stress tolerance. Um, it's a constant we're running to stand still on a treadmill to think that um, uh, of how these uh, investments will play out and why we need them. Um, at the same time, I don't think it's a silver bullet and that genetically engineered drought tolerant corn or wheat or rice or, or is, the, is the answer alone. Uh, and that at some point, the law of thermodynamics comes into play where you can't create more without an input. And so water is a critical input um, I won't be super wonky. I'm a plant biologist, soil scientist by training, and I will not invoke all of that here. Um, but there is a conserved uh, a graph of that, you know, you get so much biomass out per so much unit of water. So you can alter the plant for its uh, harvest index. You can alter its uh, timing and its short livedness to, to get more yield, but you can't avoid needing water at all. Uh, we, we're changing our management systems and having recycled systems. You know, people are doing all sorts of really innovative things to tighten up the water use efficiency of crop plants. Um, but genetic engineering, you know, even CRISPR technology, all of that, so much potential, but it's not going to save us alone. Um, and so we also need to look at our consumption, our management, our choices uh, in, in, in a much broader set of things, too. So I'm a huge believer in technology. Um, as I said, I'm a scientist. Uh, but it's not the silver bullet. It's not the only answer. Well, speaking of, of plants needing water, let's look a little bit at the consumption side. Um, it's not uniform. Um, the estimates are, give or take, that it takes about 15,000 litres of water to produce a kilo of edible beef, whereas can, producing a kilo of rice takes about 2,500 litres. It, would it simply not just be better for more people to eat less meat if we're talking about water abstraction? Um, I, you know, I appreciate this is a classic um, case of trying to compare apples to apples in terms of the footprint of commodities that we produce. Uh, but I think we oversimplify the, the issues uh, and the context-based nature of uh, the environmental footprint of food um, when, we, when, over, when we use uh, metrics like this, right? Um, the conversion efficiency, the water footprint uh, in, embedded in, in, a, in a unit of meat compared to a unit of soy, let's say. 
Um, and so I get it. And it's, it's true that uh, certain things cost more uh, to produce than others. But again, I, I really urge us to look at the context. Um, and so um, I, I think a quality nutrition uh, and where it's appropriate, I think the top line thing, uh, WWF has really taken a stance on our plant-based diets report, which came out last year around this time, is that moderation and consideration of consumption actually really matters now. We are hitting the limits of the Petri dish and thinking that we can improve technology and, and how we produce food sustainably and, and get our way out of the sustainability crisis. We, we have 10 billion people coming on the planet by 2050. We must also look now at our consumption choices for sure. Uh, but that being said, I think it's not fair to demonize one commodity over the other. I think um, uh, in the Northern Great Plains, in the US, uh, we work with ranchers very actively as stewards of the land to help conserve our native grasslands in the Northern Great Plains. Uh, and this land is not suitable. It, it's, it's marginal land and it's, it's suitable for grazing, but really not suitable for plant production. So wheat, corn and soy conversion of this landscape is the largest driver of grasslands. Um, and, and that beef production and our native nations who are working with bison is actually a better livelihood alternative. And beef is a quality nutrition product. Uh, should we all be eating at the same levels globally that we do in the US? Maybe not, but at the same time, uh, saying that beef is not does not have a place in the food chain is, is, not, is probably not also accurate. And then the other thing I will mention uh, in terms of water, especially, is there's a lot of um, issues with us, you know, the US, but also Europeans getting really specialty uh, especially horticultural crops coming out of, for instance, South America. The Ica Valley in Peru is a good case in point of desertification over extraction of groundwater. Uh, a huge rise in their horticultural crops, especially asparagus, but onions and tomatoes and, and, and other things too. For a global market, they're exporting their water at the expense of local communities and people. And so it's a plant-based product, it's nutritious, but, but the trade-offs in the context of the uh, situation really matter. Uh, attentive listeners to to our podcast will remember that we did an episode with Brent Loken uh, about the plant the planet based diet uh, a while ago now. Uh, before we get to the last question, I wanted to look ahead with you a little bit. Uh, we're also speaking not just after the Food Systems Summit, but on the eve of the COP, uh, the Conference of Parties, the big climate summit in Glasgow. What are your expectations there? Do you think we'll really get a step change because the the signals so far have been mixed, to put it that way? Yeah, I mean. You know, look, I, I cover food, but climate is existential and, and COP26 has broad ambitions even beyond food. So, you know, our goal, as I mentioned, and we had a growing food system solutions for climate, our climate future um, panel uh, earlier this week, Monday, and, you know, it had a lot of our UNFSS leadership and, and our COP leadership moving into the summit really trying to, again, beat the drum to elevate where food systems have a role to play, land use conversion, inputs, you know, methane, nitrous oxide, et cetera. Ag is a huge contributor. It's a third of our greenhouse gas emissions globally. We must address food systems uh, in the COP context. But I think the higher order, and again, I, I don't want to speak for all of my climate colleagues, but I, I think the data, the modeling, the um, projections going into COP in terms of current NDC commitments is not good in terms of us making a dent in, in the future we need to adhere to a 1.5 degree world. So our top line goals going into COP is to raise the ambition 
of national uh, commitments, including my own government, right? We've made a 52% commitment, but how we're gonna do that uh, and what's the credible pathway? Uh, we need all countries to stand up and be uh, much more ambitious, and then we need to take action. And so our that that's the top line messaging we have. We have very concrete solutions for what action needs to be taken. And for uh, for this podcast and for my equities, you know, where and how food systems need to play a role. And then thinking of the climate effects and the relationship of water and climate, you cannot separate them. So that is it's climate, but it's also nature, and then the co-benefits and the and the co-threats around nature loss with climate is the other kind of top line objective we are going into COP trying to elevate that messaging. Well, we're coming up to the end of the podcast and the last question is, this is the same one we ask of, of everybody, but uh, if you could give one single policy idea or practical suggestion to create a more sustainable food system overall, what would it be? Yeah, magic wand. This is hard, right? Um, I. I I'm really thinking about this long and hard, and I have a two point uh, one wish, I guess. Let me put it that way. Um, and and let me reference it's a it's a, again a wonky concept, but let me reference a really fantastic report that tried to simplify this concept. So the Rockefeller Foundation earlier this year released a report looking at the true cost of food in the United States, and so it was looking at all the externalities and impacts that our food system is having on things beyond just the cost of what a consumer in the industry has. You know, they rack up a trillion dollars worth of expenditures and um, th th that's what the food system is currently valued at. They actually calculated that there's uh, three times more of a cost implicated by our food system. It's really more like $3.2 trillion conservatively because of the hidden costs and impacts of the food system on human health. And um, we have, you know, um, lots of malnutrition and obesity and other sort of food related diseases, uh, number one cause of human health diseases, uh, non-communicable in the U.S., but also on the environment, on climate, on water, on soil, et cetera. And so I think my first wish, part of this wish, is that we would value food uh, for all of the food, transparently for what it really costs us as a society, as a human population, and, and for our planet. And then the second part of the wish is that if we could really value the true cost, then I wish we would allocate our public resources in support of driving a food system towards better shared values on the outcomes we really wish we could see. A healthy population, a healthy environment, and a climate that was livable that we could sustain growing food in the future. And so the UN came out with a really damning report earlier this year that 87% of the more than $540 billion of annual government support globally that goes to ag producers is either distorting or actually causing more harmful damage to health and environment. And if we could reallocate those resources towards a more positive common end, valuing what we want out of our food system for the planet, that would be a huge start. I think markets and producers would follow. Melissa Ho, Senior Vice President for Freshwater and Food at WWF US. Thank you so much for joining Food Systems today. Thanks so much, Robert, for the invitation and the chance to 
have the conversation with you. You've been listening to an episode of Food Systems, a podcast brought to you by the Forum for the Future of Agriculture. Look for us in two weeks when we release our next episode. And in the meantime, please don't forget to subscribe on your podcast app, as well as on Twitter at Forum for Ag, for updates on this podcast, news, as well as forum events. Please check out our website, www.forumforagriculture.com, for more great content. Thank you for listening and enjoy your day.